Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Welcome back. It's good to see your faces, and I'm looking forward to tonight. Let me pray for us. I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing, and then we'll jump right in. Father God, thanks for the opportunity together again as the church. We thank you for uh, the chance to do things like this, to sit and talk about some important ideas that are more than just ideas, but that actually have the power to change your lives. And so as we uh, wrap up our first portion of our time this semester, I pray that you would just bless us with some energy and clarity and, and help us to get a good sense um, in kind of a compact form of what, what we are uh, as a body, as a people, as a temple, and to be able to uh, articulate to ourselves what that looks like and certainly to others when needed so that we can prepare ourselves to be the church well. So we're grateful for the grace that saturates all that we are and do when we pray that you would send uh, no less grace than normal into the room tonight so that we might uh, live and learn in your presence. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are... Turning a little bit of a corner together tonight, and as I said, I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'll talk about why here in just a few moments. Let me, uh, one last time, not about the last time, but one more time, start by uh, noticing some of the things that we've learned. Let's kind of back up and get a little bit of a running start together. Um, this is week six of our time together, and so we've de- dealt with a decent amount of content now, and it's been a while since we first, ga- first gathered, so I kind of want to mention a few of the things that we said right up front, and then from that kind of catapult into uh, how we can pull things together tonight. So what we've learned at the very beginning was, first of all, that the church matters. We are not some sort of an afterthought in the mission of God. We're not some sort of a plan B. It wasn't that God wanted to do things one way, but then somehow, somewhere, the plan got jacked up, and so he did, ah, might as well go with the church. No, 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 no. Like, Scripture's clear that we've uh, been a part of uh, what God's plan was directed towards and was planning on moving through all along. That from the very beginning of his efforts to create a world where humans partner with him in cultivating the fruitfulness of creation, and from the very beginning of his plan to restore that after it went wrong, he was always working towards a community, and specifically community that would be gathered around his son. So from the beginning of God's plan, the church was a part of this. There is no discipleship outside the church. There is no uh, just me and Jesus kind of thing. Yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, he's my personal Lord and Savior and brother, older brother, and in many ways best friend, and I hope the same for you. But there also is an immediate sense in which we come to him together. We come to him as one people. So the church matters. That's kind of how we begin. But we also noticed right off the top there, right, uh, right off the bat, that, that talking about the church can be difficult and kind of challenging, but nevertheless, it is possible and worth it. That telling the truth about what the church is is hard because it's like telling the truth about your own family. It's sometimes you're kind of the worst person to say, here's what my family is like because you're in the middle of it. And with the church, it's hard in particular because we, most of us, come from traditions that don't really do a good job explaining the nature of the church. We talk more about other things, but we haven't necessarily talked a lot about what is the church and in, 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 in a number of, uh, for a number of years among Protestants, those who are not Roman Catholic, there's been a hesitation to talk about the church in any sort of official capacity because we don't want to return to the same errors that we push back against. You know what I mean? So there's all sorts of reasons why it's difficult to talk about the church, but nevertheless, it's possible. I mean, we've been doing it for a while now and, and certainly worth it. So that's kind of how we started, that what we're talking about matters and is worth talking about, even if talking about isn't the easiest thing. So what I want to do today is really to pull it all together. I very much feel like, and bless you for, for sticking through the process, I very much feel like each week I've come in here and I've just unloaded a lot of information. You know what I mean? Like just thrown a bunch of, not so much paint up on the wall. Think of it like this. This is one of the images that I've kind of had in my mind that I've thought about it. It's like we're trying to create this, this beautiful color. And so we're taking a bunch of different colors of paint and just throwing it on the palette. Maybe a little of this and a little of that and a little of this. Well, I want to finally mix it together and kind of see what it is we're working with. See what color we've been trying to create. That's sort of what I want to do tonight. Or if you're more of like a a writer or teacher, or certainly if there's any English majors in the room, what I want to do tonight is similar to when you pull together your ideas into a thesis. 
Maybe you're writing a paper or preparing a lesson. Or if you're in business, you're doing a business presentation and you've got a lot of data. You've got a lot of facts and figures and important things to communicate and ways to communicate those. And then at a certain point, you sit down and you say, okay, here's all the things I want to talk about. How is this going to come together into one coherent piece? Or, since we're adding meta- metaphors, let's keep going. Kind of what we, this is a more, popular, more of a popular one. What I want to do today is get the bird's eye view. We say this all the time, you know. To back up from being in the middle of the action. To back up and kind of look down on all things from this overview. That enables us to see not just the individual pieces, but how they fit together. If you've ever had the opportunity to go on a hot air balloon ride. Those were happening not too long ago. Or a helicopter ride. Or when you first get onto a plane and look out the window, you can see your city from the aerial view and you can see how what to you just looks like, here's a street and there's some houses, actually there's a plan to it. Or lastly, it's like stepping back from the trees and getting a sense of the forest. I think you get the point. What I want to do today is take all of the details that we've talked about and pull them together. So, once more, the trees. Let's look back at some statements that we've unpacked and established as being true about the church. My intent has never been for you to memorize all of these statements. Bless you if that's possible for you. But the goal is to throw a bunch of truth up there and then to pull it together. Here are some of the things that we've acknowledged are true about the church. You can follow on in your outlines. I've got quite a few pictures for you, but not quite yet. So here's what we've seen. First of all, we are the people of God. That was the first Uh, image of the church uh, that we unpacked. And what this means is we are a people who make no sense apart from the reality of God. We're not just a social club that likes to hang out together. We're a people who take our cues from God. Building on this, we we are the fulfillment and continuation of God's mission through Israel. As the church, we have inherited the mission that God began when he called Abraham's family together and said, it's through your family that I'm going to bless all the families in the world. It's through the nation of Israel that I'm going to extend my presence throughout the world. And that plan has moved forward and now settled on us. Similarly, but looking in another direction, we are a sign and foretaste of God's goal for humanity. When people look at us, the idea is that they would see, here's kind of what humans were supposed to be like, and ultimately, here's what humans will be like in the new creation. We'll come back to that a little later on. And lastly, under the idea of being the people of God, we said we are a family learning to call God Father. We don't want to miss the, uh, what, might, what we might call like the emotive or the emotional side of this. God loves us. Like when God thinks about us, what he thinks and feels is not totally unlike what we think and feel when we look at our kids which sometimes is frustration, but a lot of times is adoration, you know? And overall, we love them. So we are a family. Uh, Family language is used all throughout the Bible to describe the people of God. And in the New Testament, it's very prominent. Every time you see Paul or anybody else say, brothers and sisters, it's not just kind of a cheesy way to greet each other. He's actually making a statement there. We're a family learning to call God Father. So we are the people of God, which means those four things. Uh, Then we moved from there and said, we are also the body of Christ, a very prominent New Testament image used to describe us. And likewise, we picked out four truths that come from this. First of all, we are sinful people who've been saved by Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are a people living under Christ's authority. So when we get baptized, we say something to the effect of, I accept that Jesus' death is a sacrifice for my sins, and I'm going to commit my, my life to following him. Uh, Building on this idea of living under Christ's authority, we are a community of disciples learning to walk as Jesus did, and we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. Notice there's this missional thrust to this. Lastly, we looked at the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We examined this from some basic statements made in the New Testament, as well as the really peculiar story in Acts 5 about Ananias and Sapphira, uh, which is designed precisely to tell us we are a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Four things. We're a people in whom God is personally present. We don't just operate by our own power. God is here with us. We don't need to ask him to come. It's more that we need to acknowledge his presence. He tells us that he dwells where we are. Secondly, we are the place where God has made himself personally accessible. 
So it's not just that we experience God's presence here, but that when people come in this place, whether they know how to recognize it or not, they're walking into the presence of God in a way that was not true before they were here. Not because of the room, but because we are gathered here. So there's a sense in which God has said to the whole world, you can find me. And for some reason that is strange but seemingly true, according to Scripture, the place where they can find him most evidently is us. So God is accessible in and through us. Uh, Third, we are empowered for growth in godly character. And lastly, we are empowered as central to God's ongoing mission. So those are the statements that we have brought together. And what I want to do right now is to pull those statements together. I am not necessarily the best judge of time when it comes to how long I will talk. But my anticipation is that I'll finish a little earlier than normal today which would protect some time for questions and answers. Of course, we'll see, but that's kind of the goal. But as always, if you have questions as we go, feel free to interrupt me. So as I was looking at these things, I literally kind of threw these statements on a board, threw them on a piece of paper, and I'm examining them, and I'm thinking through what we've learned, and I'm thinking about other passages of Scripture, and I'm trying to just see if some themes emerge from this, see if some focal points emerge from all of this truth. And as I continue to wrestle with and think through and pray through this, three did. One of them is kind of a hybrid of two, but really three things kind of came out of this that I felt like make up the the basic DNA of the church. That if you don't have these things, you're talking about something other than the church. And when you have them together, there is your definition of what and who we are. There is your definition of the church. And so let's talk about what these three things are and how they fit together. The first one is the gospel. I mean, this was fairly easy. We begin with this. We begin with the fact that God has acted on our behalf. We are a people because he is God. And we are who we are because of what he's done, what he's done for us. And so the first picture here is going to come after this cute little family. That's, look at, everybody look at the church and say, oh, that's sweet. I think the large person is Jesus. I'm not 100% sure, but that's my guess. Either that or one of you really, really tall guys. So look at this next picture, and here you have just this blue circle. And by the way, I'm going to, this may be kind of weird or annoying to you guys. I'm going to kind of describe what's up there, um, even though you're looking at it, because those who may be accessing on the podcast later on, I don't want them to be totally like, what are they all looking at? That supposedly is the thing that makes sense of what he's saying. So we have a blue circle with the word gospel in it. This is our first circle. Uh, that we need to be aware of, be mindful of, as we talk about what the church, and uh, what this circle represents is the gospel for us. And so there's a lot of different ways we could go about it, but simply put, summarizing what we've talked about so far, we recognize that in in its core, the, the gospel is about God reconciling all things to himself in Christ. This is what he was doing, this is what he is doing, this is what he's always been doing. That everything fell apart when humans sinned, and so God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. He says so quite clearly in 2 Corinthians 5. He says something similar in Ephesians 1, that, that God's purpose was to bring to unity all things in Christ. And so the gospel doesn't start with just you and me as individuals. It's really creation-wide. It's cosmic. God has acted in Christ to save the world. And we are called together and created as a people by God's actions I cannot stress enough how who we are is rooted in what he has done. We are because he is, and we are what we are because of who he is and what he's done for us. And of course, what he's done is include us in this creation-wide plan to save things. So what this means for us personally is that in spite of our sin, in spite of the fact that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, that we were focused inward on ourselves and trying to secure our own happiness and trying to live in our own self-made worlds and spite of our sin, out of his great love for us, God has saved us by grace, through faith, not works. This is the heart of the gospel for us, that God has acted in Christ to save us, even though we deserve the opposite, and that this is something that we receive simply by receiving it, and simply by saying, I open my hands, I'm going to stop trying to do it on my own, and I'm going to receive what you have done that I could never do. It is not something that we earn. And to the extent that we move away from this gospel, we become something other than the church. To the extent that we try to replace it with some sort of a works righteousness, earn your way to God, try to be good enough to deserve his favor. No, we've missed it at that point. We never presume to have become good enough for it to make sense that God chose to use us. 
There's never a point when you would look at the situation kind of objectively and say, oh yeah, I can see why if God was going to work through people, he'd work through those people. They're pretty great. No, that's not the point. The point is that even though we're not great, God is making us better and working through us in spite of our own sin. We constantly rely on grace. We define ourselves by it. We exist by grace, in grace, for grace, through grace. Any other preposition you could find, you'll find grace at the other end of it. So we are at heart a gospel people. And what this means for us, though, because we want a big view of the gospel, is not just like, I'm good, I don't have to try. No, that's not the point. Like, part of the gospel is that you have been freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. That God saving you by grace through faith doesn't just mean you get to take it to heaven when you die. It does mean that you get to go to heaven when you die or that you're part of God's new creation is the more biblical way of putting it. And it does mean that your sins are forgiven. That's really good news. That the penalty for sin is no longer against us. Why? Because Jesus died as a sacrifice and averted or absorbed God's wrath so that it's not coming toward us. It would be right for God to judge me forever. But I won't experience that because I've been forgiven by virtue of Christ's death on the cross in my place. He loved me and gave himself for me. So I've been freed from the penalty of sin. But this saving that God does in and through us by his actions is not just about freeing us from the penalty. It's about freeing us from the power. That by virtue of what he's done, we actually now are capable of being free from sin. So I can look at past temptations and past failures and say, that doesn't have to be true about me anymore. Like, I don't have to continue to be an impatient or an ungentle or not self-controlled or whatever, a a non-joyful person, a harsh, violent, aggressive man, or a, I don't want to do the female stereotypes because that's always super dangerous and makes company, but you get the point. Like, whatever you struggle with sin-wise, part of the gospel is that that doesn't have to continue to be the dominant reality when it comes to who you are. So God's reconciled all things in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith, not works. We're freed from the penalty and power of sin. And this is not just some sort of a transaction. This is the establishing of a relationship. So God is with us, loving and leading us along paths of righteousness, along paths of wisdom, along the type of life that we ultimately want to live. So we've been invited into what really is a relationship with God. And it's a transformational one at that. Let me read a couple of passages to you, or I'll read one and kind of mention some others. One of my favorite texts, I feel like the book of Titus is maybe the most underrated book in the Bible. If you've not read Titus in a while, it will literally take you 10 minutes, and it will be worth it. There are just many, many nuggets of of wonderful wisdom in there. I don't know if I could say it more cheesy Christian than that. Now I'll say it my way. It's awesome, so just go read it. Here's what it says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and following. For the grace of God, so notice that we're talking about God's grace. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Awesome, that much we know. But here's what I want you to see, what it says next, the beginning of verse 12. It teaches us. Huh. So grace teaches us. Now, grace in this verse, as is often the case, is, is a really a way of talking about God being present in grace. But the point there is that God in grace teaches us. Grace teaches us. An active and present teacher teaches us, is what it says, I'll finish the verse, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So we live in this transformational relationship where God in his Son and through his Spirit is present with us. We have this present and brilliant, wise teacher This nearby guide, not from a distance. I heard a preacher one time say that you could summarize the entire story of Scripture in the word nearer. God just wanted to be nearer. He just wanted to be closer to you. So he, he, after we rejected him by virtue of our sin, he, he came down and he, he decided that he would dwell through the law. And then he decided that he would dwell in the temple. And that wasn't close enough. So he decided that he would dwell with the people as they made their way around. And that wasn't close enough. So he decided to come closer and send his son Jesus to be the physical presence of Israel's God embodied on earth. But even that wasn't close enough. So he sent the Holy Spirit so he could be with each of us all the time. That's kind of the idea here. That you're not taught 
by some external force, but rather God has, uh, we might say, placed his presence within you and is from within teaching you how to live the kind of life that he's calling you to live. Matthew 28, Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, never will I leave you or forsake you. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit's uh, involvement in our lives is, is uh, kind of talked about in parallel terms to the old pillar of cloud and fire leading Israel through the desert. You get the point. So God is with us, loving and leading us. And notice before I go any further that there's an undoubtedly like a triune shape to this salvation that God brings. There's kind of by triune, I mean trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. All are involved in this. And there seems to be some which way in which different uh, members of the Trinity have different roles, but ultimately it's one salvation. Operated together, affected together. So all of God has been working to save all of you. All of you corporately and all of you, each of you as an individual. So we start with the gospel, with the fact that God has done all these things for us, but immediately we recognize the gospel is not without effect. The gospel doesn't just leave us as we are. If you're a person who believes those things, truly believes those things, it will change you. And so we come up to this next little cute blue circle that comes up, which is another integral part of uh, the church, and that would be discipleship. Now notice on the screen inside the second blue circle that overlaps at Venn diagram style, see how I did that? It says discipleship in community. Now, I struggled with this. On your paper, I have discipleship community. I really wrestled with, are these two separate things? Are they one thing? Should I have them as different circles? And ultimately, what I determined is, I don't care how you put it, these two things work together. That's part of the whole point. That what the gospel does is it turns us into disciples, students of Jesus, people who follow him. But immediately, that happens communally. Like, we're not disciples alone. We're disciples in community. So you could say, like this, discipleship in community. You could flip it around and say that the gospel immediately calls together a family of those who believe it, who are committed to discipleship. So you might say, instead of disciples in community, a community of disciples. In the end, who cares? You get the point. Discipleship community is this next major aspect of what it means to be the church. You see this pretty consistently in different ways throughout some of the things that we've learned. So what do I mean by this? What I mean by this, again, to break it down simply, first of all, building on exactly what we said from the gospel, we live in God's presence and by God's power. So we haven't moved on from the gospel to some other thing. Rather, what we're doing is we're exploring what the gospel does in us. So in God's presence and by God's power, we manifest God's goals for humanity. How many times have we talked about that? We talked about it when we talked about the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. At every point in the process, what we've learned is that part of what's to be going on in the church is that we live in such a way that humans were supposed to live. That we, uh, that we are kind of what God originally had had in mind or intended for Adam and his offspring. Looking back or looking forward that we are or are becoming the kind of people who will exist in God's new creation. Of course we're not perfect yet, but we are very really and truly changed so that new creation is alive in us and we begin to operate by the beliefs and the, and the values and the concerns of, of eternity, not just time. So we live differently and in our efforts to do this, we, we manifest God's goal for humanity. But how do we actually do that? I mean, that sounds so fancy and certainly doesn't feel fancy when we're talking about our day-to-day lives. So how do we manifest God's goal for humanity? Well, precisely... By living together under God's authority. Again, note the Trinitarian shape. And If that's a big weird word, all I mean when I say that is, notice that we're not talking about Father or Son or Spirit. We're talking about the Godhead. All of God. Like under whose authority do we live? Well, at every point we've seen this. When we talked about being the people of God, we said that we live under his authority. That we are his people. We're defined by what he thinks. Our primary concern is not to be on the right side of history, but to be on the right side of God. You know what I mean? Like we ultimately take all of our cues from him. Then when we talked about body of Christ, what do we say? The body is in its original context a kind of a political metaphor to say that this is a group of people who have a common Lord. Jesus is called Lord. Jesus is called our head. Jesus is called our king. And so we live in submission to his authority. And then with the spirit, not only is well, not only was like the problem in Acts 5 that people disrespected the Spirit and therefore died, 
But more generally, the Spirit guides us and leads us and tells us what to do and how to live and, and, and expects us to obey. So there's an authority piece to all of this. So we manifest God's goals for humanity by living together under God's authority. And how does this play out in practice? By the final line up there. We follow Jesus' example and teachings. Simple as that. Now by follow his example... Obviously, I don't mean that you and I are supposed to go become Jewish rabbis. That's probably not in our calling. You know what I mean? Like some of y'all probably could be a carpenter even if you lived in Bethlehem today, but me, probably not. So that's not when certainly none of us are called to die for the sins of the world. So I'm not supposed to be like Jesus in that sense. What does it mean for him to be an example for me? Well, the idea is fairly simple, and we've talked about it, but it's worth mentioning again it is that you, if you take the heart of Jesus or the, the, the values and the beliefs and the virtues and the character and the spirit of Jesus, if you take the, the, that of Jesus and plug it into your life, what would it look like? That's what it means for you to follow Jesus' example. So as a husband to your wife or wife to your husband or as a single person or as a widow or a widowed or as a, as a, as a second-time single, wherever you find yourself today, what it looks like for you is to be Jesus in that context with your children, with your body, with your abilities, with your inabilities, with your courages, with your fears, with your neighbors, with your job, like all the details of your life, of Jesus, you take and like plug and play his mindset in your life. What does it look like? That's what it means to follow his example. But it's not just that there's this vague sense of, hey, do your best to guess what that would mean, because ultimately, like, how do I know what he would do? That's why it's not just his example, but also his teachings as well. So we are to follow Jesus' example and teachings, the teachings of Jesus. For us as the church, as the discipleship community, his teachings are, I mean, that's our, that's our constitution, our first one. We have two. That's our first one. That's our Magna Carta. That's our manifesto. Call it what you want. His teachings provide the roadmap for the way we live our lives. So we look at what he says and we follow it recognizing that this is what the Spirit is doing in us. Again, by God's power, in God's presence, we do what Jesus said. We don't harbor our anger, but deal with conflict before it erupts into some sort of a violent outburst. We keep our marriage commitments and honor our spouses, not just with our bodies, but even in our minds. We tell the truth so consistently. We're such men and women of our word that we never have to say, oh, I swear, because people just know that when we speak, we're telling the truth. We're saying it like it is. We love not just our friends, but our enemies. And when we are attacked, we respond with blessing. When somebody does something wrong to us, we don't seek vengeance. And sometimes we forego justice, not out of weakness, but out of strength, so that we might demonstrate forgiveness. This is the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. When we find ourselves in a situation where we have financial stress, we don't do nothing, but whatever we do, we do in a spirit of faith. Trusting that God has this and all will be well. And even if we lose some of the things we'd rather not lose, God is good. He's guiding us. And if we seek his kingdom above all things, then he'll provide for our basic needs on his own and through the church. So we're a people who follow Jesus' teachings. Again, putting all this together, we have the gospel as the first circle, but the gospel then creates this discipleship community who, living in God's presence and by God's power, manifests God's goals for humanity by living together under God's authority and following the example of teachings of Jesus. That's what we do. But this doesn't just stop on its own. The gospel and discipleship aren't everything. Because if you're a person who believes in the gospel, you don't want to keep it to yourself. And if you're a person who's following Jesus, you can't follow Jesus and not care about the people who don't belong to Jesus because Jesus cared about everybody. So out of gospel and discipleship flows mission. You saw this at every point. People of God, uh, body of Christ, temple of the spirit, it all eventually results in mission. That we're a type of people who are sent out into the world, not just to keep the blessing for ourselves, but to extend it to everybody. The word mission just means sent people. comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. The Greek word that translates into missio is apostolic. That's what it means to be an apostolic church, that we're sent 
to go and to extend God's blessing and to share this salvation and to bring as many people as we can into this. We don't just exist for ourselves, but rather to move God's mission forward. Somebody once said that the church is the only voluntary organization that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. The idea, again, listen to that quote. I can't remember, maybe it sounds like something Chesterton would say, that the, the, the church is the only voluntary organization in the world So you sign up for this, nobody pressures you and you sign up, that exists primarily for the benefit of the people who aren't here. That's us. Because we are always a sent people. We are always a people on mission. And so as we think about the mission, we never forget the story of God's mission. That missio dei phrase is a a phrase that is sometimes used in Latin for mission of God. And it stretches all the way back to Adam. God began his mission when he created Adam to cultivate creation's beauty and to to reflect God's power and love and goodness to one another and to the created world. And of course we jacked it up, Adam, and in him the rest of us. And so God called together Israel. And Israel was designed to be the set-apart people. But ultimately God's plan all along was really to draw sin to one place where through his son, the faithful Israelite Jesus the Messiah, he could deal with sin and then stretch this blessing out to the rest of the world. So Adam, Israel, Jesus, church, that's kind of our story. That's our history. That's what animates us. That's how we understand ourselves to fall into the flow of God's actions throughout time. And the goal of this redemption is always twofold, to undo sin and to extend God's blessing, to undo sin in us, to release its power, First of all, within us as individuals and communities, and and ultimately this is a sign and foretaste of God undoing sin throughout the universe. That's always been his plan. In the same way that he originally intended this thing to move forward through humans, that's why Jesus had to be a man, and that's that's why Jesus had to be a human, and that's why we, the church, are a core part of what he's doing. So he wants to undo sin and then also put positively, extend God's blessing outside the community, primarily by inviting other people to join in it. And in this, once again, we remember the overlap of the ages concept, how we live in between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so because the second coming hasn't happened yet, we still live in a world of brokenness and evil and anger and injustice. We still live in the old world ruled by sin and Satan and evil. But at the same time, when Jesus rose from the dead, we live on this side of that. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he began new creation within the shell of the old. We're like a balloon filled with helium inside a balloon filled with oxygen. We can't become all that we were made to be, but we can be better within this broken world. So that's our mission that we're called to live in the overlap of the ages. And what we do during this overlap of the ages, during this unique time in history, is we witness In one word, that is our mission, to witness. We witness with with what we are. We witness by what we do, and we witness by what we say. Let me say a couple of things about this piece, because I'm still not quite sure. I may have to miss one week of our time, and uh, uh, don't worry, I'll send somebody who's better than me, so you won't miss anything. But I may actually miss the day we talk about uh, the witnessing mission of the church. So I want to say a couple of things. Now, first of all, we witness, first and foremost, by what we are. Before we do anything, often you'll hear people say, well, we first have to witness by our actions and then by our words. Well, we do, but that's actually not first. First, we witness by what we are, a group of broken, different people brought together in one family. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that the church, as this collection of Jews and Gentiles, together under one roof, is assigned to the cosmic powers of this world that Jesus is king. So, but it, I don't know who said this either, so I'm quoting somebody, but I can't remember who. Somebody once said that the church does not have an evangelism strategy. The church is an evangelism strategy. That God's goal in getting the gospel out to all the world, his strategy is to call together a group of jacked up people like me and you to be one family trying to follow him and live in grace. So first of all, by what we are, we witness. And then, of course, by what we do, by our acts of justice and mercy and love, by our taking care of our families and taking care of other people's families, by our sharing our resources to help those who are in need, by our all sorts of things uh, that we can do. And this is where, too, your work lives come into this. Your work lives aren't separate from the kingdom of God. It's not that you have your spiritual stuff and then your work stuff. No, like you are doing the work of God through your jobs. Whether you know it or not, and for you as Christians, you get to know that you're doing it in that sense. 
So if you're a carpenter, if you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you're a secretary, whatever you are, like you doing your job well to the glory of God is a part of this. So we witness by what we are, we witness by what we do, but eventually we do witness by what we say. I think evangelism gets a bad rap. And I myself have participated in this more ways than I, than I care to admit. But I was handed by those that came before me kind of a weird model of evangelism. You know, like think 15, 20 years ago, it was like up in your face. I remember one time walking out of a movie theater and like, I'm a Christian kid. You know, I'm in junior in high school and I like love Jesus, right? I'm walking out of this movie and this girl throws this gospel tract in my face. If you died tonight, where would you go? If you died tonight, what would God say? I'm thinking to myself, if you died tonight, you'd be in trouble because you just ruined my movie. So there, get out of my face, you know. So I like, in much of my early life and following Jesus seriously, was like, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to live it out, you know, like preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Such a cool quote. And it is cool. But it always is necessary to eventually use words. Like, yeah, you can't just use the words without the actions. That doesn't do any good. I think we all realize that. But the actions on their own, ultimately somebody at some point has to say, you know why we're doing this? Jesus. You know how, why I have joy in spite of the fact that I'm surrounded by suffering? It's not because I have a positive attitude. It's because I know Jesus. So I don't want to beat you over the head and say, go tell your neighbors about Jesus. But go tell your neighbors about Jesus. He's awesome. And your coworkers too. You've got to have discernment and sensitivity to the timing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes you can do more by saying nothing. Absolutely. There's just a certain point at which, though, we attempt with our broken, futile, not perfect efforts to say something true about God. And so in this way, we, we witness. So looking at this, you have these three components uh, of, of what I would say make up the church. The gospel is the primary component calling together a discipleship community and out of this flows mission. So we have our three overlapping blue circles with the centerpiece that includes all three of them. And if I could land the plane, here's what I would suggest to you. Let me get you the next slide and take a look at this. Here is my basic definition of the church. It is that piece in the middle. Here's how I would articulate it. I'm not saying this is perfect, but I think it's kind of simple enough to be helpful. What is the church? It's a community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. You can change that as much as you want, but those are the elements that have to be there. The wording can go, the concept has to stay the same. This is who we are. We are a community of disciples. And so it's not the building, it's the people. That's what we started with. We're a community of disciples who remain rooted in the gospel. If we uproot from the gospel, we die. Like we're no longer anything. We're just dead. So a community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. So we're Jesus followers who find our grounding in the grace of God and then from this place seek to extend God's mission in whatever ways we can. That, in its most basic sense, is the church. One more time, a community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. Notice also that if you take away any one of the three basic elements, you have something less than the church. So let's start taking them away one at a time and noticing what we have. When you find yourself in a situation where you have the gospel and discipleship, but, uh, but no mission, you have like what we sometimes call a holy huddle. Just a group of spiritual people hanging out together, but that's not a church. Many of you may have grown up in churches where you had the gospel and you kind of had discipleship, but nothing was happening. And I'm not saying like the people there weren't saved. I'm just saying this is not what God had in mind. Because if you don't have mission, you don't have the church. So the gospel plus discipleship community minus mission is just, if I could say this, a bunch of spiritually constipated people that need to let it out, if you know what I mean. So if we're not extending the grace of God, if we're not seeing new people get into that water, something's wrong. And if we're not finding ways to live out the gospel in your particular context on a daily basis, whether it's like, as I said, a doctor, teacher, mom, dad, whatever. If we're not finding ways to do that, something's wrong. We, We don't have the church. Similarly, if you take away gospel and you just have discipleship and mission, you have some maybe cool things happening, but ultimately it's not a church. It's a social club because you've oriented yourself around an ethic and a cause. That is not a church. To be organized around an ethic is not to be the church. This is, 
And I don't know to what, it's hard for me always to know sort of which of these dangerous ideas are, are imposing themselves upon whom. But uh, historically, what is rightly called liberal Christianity removes the gospel. We're just a group of people that orient ourselves around an ethic. In popular terms, this is people who say, you know what, it's not about like heaven and hell and all that kind of crazy stuff. I just want to follow Jesus, man. I just want to follow his teachings and like live for him. And you know what I mean? It's like he had some good ideas. We want to live those out ethically and and do good for people. You're not a church. I have no doubt that your motives are legit. And I'm not trying to, and I don't, I don't imagine I'm talking to many people in the room. Those who aren't in the room, I'm not trying to beat up on them. It's not fair they're not in the room. I just want to tell the truth and say this is something other than the church. We are not people organized around an ethic or a cause. We're organized around a person. And ultimately, anytime you have people who remove the gospel, you end up with legalism. Because you start to define the ethic and to define the cause as the thing that separates you. What separates you and defines you as Christians is no longer the grace of God received by faith with open arms. Instead, it's do you follow this list? Or do you take part in this particular cause? And anytime you have that, according to the book of Galatians, you're not in a good place. Like you have something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is kind of the thing that Paul said anathema to. This is the kind of thing that Paul said. If anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel or the, and preaches a message that removes the gospel, a gospel that he says in Galatians 1 is not really a gospel at all, let them be accursed. Even if it's an angel of God, even if it's me, if we say something to you other than what we originally said, which is that you're saved by grace through faith, then do not listen to us because it's something else altogether. So if we remove the gospel, then we find ourselves in what I would call a social club, what eventually amounts to legalism. Some of you grew up in places such as this. Again, I'm not heaping shame on anybody. We're all very imperfect, including our particular church here. But when you have that, you don't have the church. Similarly, to remove our final element, if you have the mission plus gospel minus discipleship, you have, I don't know what else to call it other than shallow Christianity. Honestly, what I want to call it is heartless Christianity, but I don't mean like they're really mean. I mean, there's no transformation of the heart. And to be honest with you, I grew up in a pretty cool church, so I don't have a whole lot of complaints about my upbringing other than the whole, you shouldn't do that in church, but that's everywhere, you know? So this, though, I feel like is, is been fairly common. I don't know if it still is or not. I just, I, who knows if it's common? I see this sometimes. I see people who believe in the gospel and they want to get other people to believe in the gospel, but there's not actually any discipleship taking place. So we have the truth of the gospel and we have the cause. And at the end of the day, if you had to lose one, I don't want to say that because I don't want to lose one. This is something less than what we're designed to be. Yeah, it's very dangerous to just sort of become inward focused and it's all about our growing and such. But the reality is a part of what God intended the church to be was a place where we become something other than what we were. Where we become something more than what we are. Where we together come to look more like Jesus in actuality. So if you remove that piece of it and you just have the gospel and mission, you got a bunch of people who get saved and all, and, and all they're thinking about is I got my ticket to heaven and I got to get other people into the same. You could do worse, no doubt, but there's more to it than that. And God's dream for us is that we have the whole picture, that we have the whole thing. So I believe I've got, I think, a final slide that just sums it up so that I can leave this up there. This is the same one as before. Yeah, so there's, you see what we have and we take it out. And there in the middle is, of course, what we have and we put it back together. I'm going to say it one more time, and then I'm going to pause and give you some time to reflect. I have believe it or not, I'm a little surprised myself, achieved my goal of finishing uh, somewhat early. So we now have some time. I want you to think over these things after I read this last time. Think over these things uh, and see if any questions are kind of percolating in you. And we'll talk together for a bit and then dismiss when the time seems right. One more time. What is the church? A community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. So think I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to give you some space, psychological space for you. I'm going to look up here in a moment and see if there are any hands with questions. All right, any questions? Yes, sir.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. I hope you heard what he said. And one of the things that we're going to see over the next three weeks as we talk about what the church does is if you take these things and then ask, okay, if this is true about a community at a bird's eye view, what does that look like in practice? And one of the things that it looks like is correction. One of the things that it looks like is at times rebuke. And very true. I remember I taught today on my Galatians class on Galatians 6. If anybody is caught in a sin, then those who live in the Spirit should uh, restore that person gently is what it says. And they should watch lest they too fall into temptation. Don't become conceited, those kind of things. So yeah, that's absolutely a piece of it. And honestly, I've got to be very careful with this. But i got a friend right now, a Christian friend, who is... Um, uh, is currently going through a time where he he needs to be called to the carpet on some things. Need to be needs to be rebuked and is being rebuked. This is from my former ministry, so it's nobody any of you know. Um, and I tried to call him on the way over here to get a hold of him. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk soon. And I don't mean to simp- oversimplify the situation, but I think part of what happens in some of these cases is that idea that nobody can tell me what I don't want to hear which is exactly what you're talking about, is the dominant philosophy of our world creeps into the church. And yeah, absolutely, part of what it means to live under the authority of the God, under the lordship of Jesus, is to submit, qualified submission, but to submit to the leaders of the church. Now, when, of course, when the leaders of the church aren't acting in line with the scriptures and with the truth of the gospel, then we don't submit. But if the leaders of the church are saying, hey, listen, here from Scripture is pretty clear evidence that you're living in a way that needs to be confronted, then we listen to those things. Yeah, there's a way in which uh, God becomes present to us in this precise fashion. Yeah, good. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. It totally is. And that's one of the things I think we're going to have to realize as a church in these next, this next era of history, at least in America and in the West, is conversion is a real thing. Like we can no longer rely on people's cultural upbringing to prepare them for the gospel. No, like their cultural upbringing now moves them away from the gospel precisely because of what you're talking about. The idea that I am uh, independent and autonomous and I figure out truth for myself and there is no absolute and therefore you can't tell me what to do and if you try to, then I'm going to say why and if you say the Bible, then I'm going to say why. Yeah, absolutely. So part of what we need to do yeah, in our, in our efforts to bring people into the faith is to clarify. Andy kind of put those two comments together is to say like when you say yes to this, what you're saying is that God as revealed in scripture and mediated at some level through the church not that we don't have direct access but it communicates his will through the church his interpretation of the scriptures and reading the scriptures and submission to the scriptures that ultimately there's a point where i say i'm going to submit and that is absolutely countercultural. and there's all sorts of cultural reasons why if i had a huge whiteboard i'd draw you a picture of what i think is a simple understanding of the last 500 years simply put you have the reformation which is this, we're no long, before the Reformation and before some of the things happening at the time, there was this implicit trust in the authority of the church. That we order society under God and the church tells us what to do and we, for the most part, do it. And then the Reformation says, well, the church is getting the message wrong. 
And as a result of that, there's this sense in which now, along with some other movements at the time, we begin to think for ourselves. And around this same time, the church is splintering. So the church is splintering over here, and you have this loss of credibility, this loss of authority. And people are now looking at the church and saying, we can't count on you to give us anything objective. All you have is your subjective opinions and feelings. And you guys in France say that we should believe in God this way. And you guys in Germany say we should believe in God this way. And you guys in England say we should believe in God this way. And don't even get us started on the Italians. You know what I mean? So we've got the splintered church. Meanwhile, out of this same idea that we think for ourselves and reevaluate what we've always known, you have advances in scientific understanding. So all of a sudden, the scale is starting to tip, and now the only thing we can rely on is scientific truth, that moral truth is relative and scientific truth is absolute, and ultimately, this leads to this confidence in human reason, this leads to this skepticism about spiritual authority, and so you arrive at a situation where Nietzsche can look at the society and say, for all intents and purposes, God is dead. And what he meant by that was not God has died, but most people in our world no longer factor God into their everyday thinking. He's just not an authority figure in the way that he was. Now fast forward that another couple hundred years. This is the world in which we live, where the primary value of our culture as a whole is individual autonomous freedom. Like, I get to do what I want. I get to determine what is true. I get to determine how I live. And yet that just doesn't align well with this. So we come in here, and you even saw it on some of our videos that we have done for the Why Church series. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? Oh, he was accepting and tolerant of other people. Have you ever read, like, the Gospels? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, invite anybody, and he'd tell them all that, you know, here's what you got to do. Anybody's welcome, and oh, by the way, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So yes, yes, we have to sort of recapture and just acknowledge that, There's a major change that happens when you move from outside the faith to inside the faith and you submit yourself to this certain authority. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I can, um, and I, I don't know if I'll satisfy the whole question, but I'll certainly do my best. Yeah, in Matthew 5.13, Jesus says to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, which is a pretty radical statement for him to make, because these are Israel titles, and he's saying, you, my followers, are these things. Idea being that you season the world, that you bring spice to it, that you provide light to it, and I think these metaphors speak to this component over here that is the mission of God. That what he means by that in the terms in which I'm talking about it now are that we witness, that we bring good things and we tell the truth and we offer grace and truth and yeah, both. So the idea of being the salt of the earth, light of the world is precisely what I mean by mission. And to come back to my three aspects of witnessing, we do this by what we are, we do this by what we do, and we do this by what we say. And often this is what we might call, and I don't like these terms, but I can't think of anything better on the fly, positive, right? So to be the salt of the earth, light of the world is to, uh, you know, for instance, partner with an organization like Web City Cares to provide food for those that don't have it, those sorts of things. So we actively try to bless the world. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. But there also is a sense in which being the salt of the earth, light of the world means that we tell the world when it's wrong. So, so, so far as we believe. Obviously, it's what we believe. We don't know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you should too right now. No, but we believe it. We, we believe it to be true, so much so that we would say we know this to be true. Humbly, yes, but we believe this is what God has revealed, and this is the way it is. And so, yeah, like Jesus said, the world doesn't like me, so we're probably not going to like you because I testify that what the world does is wrong, John 16. My hesitation, though, in terms of... Um, not hesitation, one of the things I think is important to keep in mind when we start to talk about, you know, offend anybody politically is, two, we don't want to offend anybody more than necessary, Um, and at the same time, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that it is the government's job to do the church's job. So long as we avoid those two things, yeah, let's tell the truth. I could not care less. Like, I want to be sensitive to individuals. I could not care less if somebody, for ideological reasons, has a problem with me saying that abortion is taking human life. I don't care. 
You know what I mean? Like, if you're a person, if you're a woman who has wrestled with that, what I'm not saying is I don't care how you feel. If, if that is a part of your story, if that's a part of your past, what I'm not saying is you should feel like you're worse than everybody else in the room, including me. Not a chance. This is why we start with the gospel, because I'm horrible, to, I'm horrible in my own self. You know what I mean? I've done things as well. So, but in terms of the political offense of that, I could care so little. I don't even have a, an expression in English to describe how I feel. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and on other things, you know, we could probably multiply the examples for sure. So I hesitate to, um, I mean, I don't think Pat Robertson is the answer. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my wife is getting a master's degree from Liberty University, and I'm super excited about what she's doing. I don't think Jerry Falwell did it right, but I think he died trying. You know what I'm saying? I think he was very wrong on some things, because I don't think he got Jesus in some important ways. And so the old religious right to me isn't the solution. I'm not saying you think it is. But I think that the answer isn't to run so far away from saying anything publicly that we just try to be nice to everybody. So uh, hard to know exactly what you're thinking, but I hope I've spoken into it a little bit. That, yeah, I think specifically those metaphors are critical for thinking about what we do. Salt of the earth, light of the world, um, those sorts of things. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I got two men talking. Let's go up here and then back here. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I think. Yeah. Yes. Actually, it probably is. I think so. I think it is freedom. Freedom to choose the good has become. I have the authority to do what is dumb. You know what I mean? And to tell you it's not dumb. So yes, I think that, I like that, malignant free will. I would say that what has happened is God has given us the power of contrary choice, the freedom to choose one path or the other. Um, but the, obviously the goal is that we would submit to his authority and therefore choose this path. And what we say is, I'd rather be my own authority and choose this path. So he doesn't want us to be dependent like a baby. I think the relationship that God wants to us is not unlike a, a, you know, a mature uh, parent-adult-child relationship. Ultimately, I think that's where he wants to take us. So it's not that he wants us to be you know, dependent in a weird way, but there's a sense in which we're always dependent on him. And yeah, the idea that I get to determine truth all by myself is free will run amok. It's free will gone wrong. It was the risk God took in creating a world of real beings who can choose to love him or reject him. In doing that, and it wasn't a risk in the ultimate sense because God is sovereign and he has all things worked out in such a way that we will one day see. But there was the possibility that became an actuality that people would reject him. So yeah, autonomous, I'm kind of thinking out loud to make sure that I arrive at the conclusion I want to to your question. Autonomous uh, human freedom in its 21st century variety is malignant free will, precisely. I teach a Doctrine of Humanity class. I will use the phrase malignant free will, and I will credit you for it. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Bill. Yeah. If it wasn't for legalism, you don't think you would have been converted? Yeah. Yeah. And here's what I would say. Two things. One, I would say, God, you know, this is a Martin Luther quote, I believe. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I'm glad that that is true. So I'm not surprised that God used, in your case, legalism, because God can use anything. I think God can use, I got a, one of my most, most fun students right now, God used atheism to reach him. So uh, God is that good, but I don't think the conclusion, therefore, is we should be okay with or even tolerate legalism, namely because of Paul's response to it. Paul tolerates some junk in his churches, but not legalism. You know what I mean? And so I'm very, very glad that in the providence of God, he used that crooked of a stick to bring you on, onto the straight and narrow. But uh, I believe that better would have happened had you been presented with a true view of the gospel because leaving legalism behind is not leaving obedience behind. 
You know what I mean? We have that authority piece that we never lose. Like we're talking essentially about living under the lordship of Christ. And so there's a very real call to obedience. Um, Paul's, the book of Galatians, Paul is, the, in, in a sentence, Galatians is a defense of gospel freedom. And in the first part of this, chapters 1 and 2, Paul gives a personal defense of gospel freedom. He says, I received my gospel from God himself. It was supported by the leaders in Jerusalem, and it was sustained even in conflict with the apostle Peter. So you look at my story and my reception of the gospel, and there's no stains, no black marks. Then the middle section of Galatians is chapters 3 and 4. That's what I call Paul's theological defense of gospel freedom. He goes through these various contrasts. Which works, law or faith? Well, when you became Christians, it wasn't because you followed the law. That's not why the Holy Spirit came into your life. It's because of faith. So then he says, well, what about the law then? How does it serve the purposes of God? Well, it was brought in in order to keep people prepared for the receiving of his promise. From there, he talks about, are you slaves or sons? Then he does some, anyway, I don't want to get into the whole book. But then in the very last section of it, uh, starting it would be in chapter 5 and 6, is Paul's practical defense of the gospel. And his whole argument is, he's giving these moral instructions, but it's not just, here's what I've said, now go and do it. He's saying, when you actually follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit, you live the very life the law called for in the first place. The law called for this, but couldn't make it happen. Jesus and the Spirit makes it happen. And so even in his moral instructions, he's defending the freedom that we find in the gospel. Ultimately, uh, the, only, the, the primary parameter for us is faith expressed in love. We trust in God radically, and that results in a life of radical love towards others. So there's an obedience piece, no question. But I just don't, like, I just wouldn't tolerate legalism per se. I'll snuff it out every chance I get, even if it loses me some friends, you know. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what she says is we have a lot of law in Scripture. We have the, you know, the, um, the ceremonial law, the civil law. We can go through some other types. And then Jeremiah says the law is going to be written on your heart. What I think he means there is exactly what Paul unpacks in Galatians 5. That the Spirit's going to take up residence you in you and is going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can add other virtues from other parts of the New Testament, humility, wisdom, compassion, these things. The Spirit is going to do these things that are a fulfillment of what the law was trying to get you to do. That's what I think he means. So in Galatians 6, he'll say, bear one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. So ultimately, we follow the Torah in its essence or in its heart, specifically by no longer demanding that we follow the letter of the law. It's not that we've said we don't care about that. It's that we've said that was always pointing to this and that's no longer relevant because it's no longer needed. We now have the teachings and example of Jesus, that's our charter, and the power of the Spirit within us. So this is a promise specifically, um, I don't know, maybe at other places as well, but in Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, that uh, the Spirit will come in, that we will know God personally, that we will be moved to do the right thing. Ezekiel makes the same promise in chapters 36 and 37. All of these are prophecies about what will happen after the Messiah comes. This is what we mean by living in the overlap of the ages, living in between the first and second coming, is that the law has been written on our hearts. And so you find yourself in a situation of temptation, wanting to do good. That's often the difference once a person becomes a follower of Jesus. It's not necessarily that they automatically do good. It's that now, in addition to wanting to do bad, which they always wanted, they now want to do good. And this struggle ensues. Ultimately, they have victory to the extent that they step into that. So that's what I think Jeremiah meant, um, is that we would be people in whom God's Spirit personally dwells so that we are moved to follow the heart and the essence of his laws. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, also in Romans uh, 13, that the essence of the law is fulfilled in the command to love. Jesus himself, to love God and love people. Um, I don't want to sound like a hippie either. So love God and love people. There's real content to that. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 12, same thing. What's the most important one? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Both coming out of it. So that's, that's how I kind of think about it. Um, I could say much more on the law, but I'd be overly rabbit trailing. So I'll leave it at there for now. But good, good question. 
Um, other questions? Let me do time check here. Oh, we're, we're pretty much done. So if you have any other questions, I'll hang up here for a bit. Here's what, I want, here's what we're going to be moving on from here. Starting next week, we're going to be looking at what the church does, unpacking some different parameters of, of practices of what we actually do together. And then after talking about that for about three weeks, we're going to wrap up our final three weeks by talking about how we organize all of this activity in a way that manifests itself in a well-run, well-lived community. Let me pray for us one more time and then we'll be done. Father God, we pray that you would overcome all of our insufficiencies, certainly mine and also uh, those of everybody else in the room. We're grateful for grace. We live in it. We, We rely on it. We love it. And I pray that you would help us to see it clearly enough to want to extend it to others. I pray that as we go from this place, we would realize that we are a part of this thing, this community of people who are trying to follow your son uh, by your power, living in your presence, and that we would, uh, we would just be the church. We pray that you would help us to be the church, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.